All right, Miss Fisher, if anybody knows the answer to this, you will. What does it mean to be a man in 2018? What now defines masculinity? Well, um, I think uh, what makes a good man in 2018 is uh, humility and humanity. Ooh. And I think what makes what defines masculinity uh, is ultimately different for everybody. I think it is but for you. Like I'm asking you. But it's not. But I'm not a man. And what I perceive as important in terms of representations of masculinity is not necessarily what a man will find or a ma or a male identifying person will define as important to and of them. You're skirting right? the second part of the answer. I'm not skirting it. I'm not skirting it. But I do think that it ties in with my first answer. And I think ultimately, masculinity like femininity ultimately, in my mind, comes down to aspects of personhood. I think it is individual based on the individual. Mm -hmm. I think we all have uh, what to me defines me in a feminine way is not necessarily what defines femininity for a for a lesbian, for a woman of color, for uh, for a very femme woman versus a more a more you know air quotes masculine woman. And the same thing goes for men. What defines masculinity for one person is not the same as another. And I think that's the most appropriate way. I think what defines you're saying the words themselves are in flux. Uh, yes, absolutely. More think, so than possibly they ever have. Uh, I yes, actually, oh, I think now more than ever it is very time. much it, it is, and it's important. I think. I I agree, and it's why I'm asking. I yeah. it's I don't know the answer. That's why I'm at, that's why I'm asking, and that's why I'm asking the women in my life. And that's and so that's, that's important. Thank you for the answer. You're welcome. Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 205 of the Matinee Cast. It's the movie loving podcast of my movie loving website, thematinee.ca. Your home for cinematic passion and perspective. Dear listeners, sometimes life throws you a curveball. Life, luck, fate, destiny, whatever you want to call the larger forces at play, sometimes they can come together and help you create something great. Sometimes they can align and take great things away. Sometimes they can bring people into your life. Sometimes they can take people out. Episode 205 and its guests are sort of like that. You see, she's a dear friend of the show who I found myself developing a gentle kinship with as others were splintering away. What's more, she's here to help me set another podcasting paper boat out into the waters not long after I watched one keel over and sink. She's a smart lass, an amazing friend, and a worthy adversary if ever there was one. Co-host of A Frame Apart, soon to be found on Fangoria. <laughs> Ariel Fisher's here. How are you, Ariel Fisher? I'm wonderful, especially after such a glowing introduction. Thank you. <laughs> it's amazing just... that you're still so kind to me after what happened on A Frame Apart episode 100. That was exhilarating. Are it... you kidding? I, I, I don't even smoke and I wanted a cigarette after that. <laughs> well, it was hilarious because even Bob, my co-host and partner in Life and Crime, was saying, he's like, I'm watching you guys and I'm sitting here really tense like, oh God, this is destroying them. No. And then we hug afterwards and I'm like, I love you. Yeah. I love you too. Yeah. That's, Nothing uh, but admiration exact, and mutual respect. Welcome. I'm so happy to have you here. <laughs> On episode 205, we will be discussing 8th grade. We'll be turning the record over to play the other side. But first, we need to learn more about Ariel. This is Know Your Enemy. Ariel first appeared, there are 
year-end shows and Back to the Future shenanigans that are scattered in here that are not going to get mentioned. But her, your first full appearance was on episode 112, where we talked about Rages of the Lost Ark, who's a birthday show. <laughs> on there, we learned the first movie you ever saw in a theater was Home Alone. The last film you'd seen at the time was Chef. The worst film you'd ever seen, and I believe this probably still stands, is Legally Blonde 2. Yep. The unseen classic or essential, which now has been seen and discussed at great length, is Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, and the film you wish you'd made was Pulp Fiction. Then, uh, you returned for episode 139, where we talked about Slow West. The film that you dig, that nobody else does, and I'm pretty sure still nobody else does, is Burlesque. The <laughs> film, That's right. The I film's about that. plural that everybody else likes that you don't, and again, this was discussed at length, are Blade Runner and 2001 A Space Odyssey. The <laughs> I film love the, the connection to episode 100. There's so much kismet here, it's great. The last movie to make you cry was Big Hero 6. In the movie of your life, you were played by Katherine Hepburn, and the movie you were watching next was The Imitation Game. Finally, last year we did episode 180, and we talked about The Beguiled, which I just re-watched last week. Still like it? Love it, and I actually wish... We'd recorded that episode two days later because I watched the old one. Oh my God, are you wrong? <laughs> um, but on that episode, the films, plural, that made Ariel's love of film turn a corner were both Annie Hall and The Purple Rose of Cairo. Her date movie, which she spun in a whole other direction than I was intending, was Interview with the Vampire. <laughs> Sick day movies can probably best be summed as the great adventure movies. Princess Spy, Lord of the Rings trilogy, Jaws, Back to the Future trilogy, and Indiana Jones and Last Crusade. Um, the last movie to leave her speechless was Germany Pale Mother. And her epitaph from Anne of Avonlea is, I went looking for my dreams outside of myself, discovered it's not what the world holds for you, but what you bring to it. Here, here. Oh. Time for round four. It was pretty good, right? You yeah. did pretty well. Aww. Time for round four. Miss Fisher, what is a film you really dig, but you never want to see again? You've actually just mentioned it, Germany Pale Mother. Oh, shit. Yeah. I was thinking about this, and it's the first one that just popped right into my brain. So for anybody who's not aware, Germany Pale Mother was a, a film, a German film from 1980, written and directed by Helma Sanders Brahms, uh, who was born in 1940 and died in 2014 with 27 films to her name. Uh, it is an exceptional film. I actually, I've only ever watched it the once. I watched it when I was in university, in university, I can speak, at McMaster taking a film on German cinema and it focuses on the life of a woman, uh, a German woman who is affiliated with the Nazi party through her husband uh, and he goes off to war and it's all about the German experience in Germany during World War II as an attempt to kind of shine a light on the struggles, the trials, the tribulations that the German population went through. Because it is important to note, not all German, and this is coming from the Jew, to keep in mind, <laughs> whose grandfather was a victim of the Holocaust uh, and who spent the duration in a, in a Siberian gulag when fleeing Poland. Um, it's important to remember that not all, not all Germans are Nazis, and a great many Germans were suffered brutally during the war. It's an outstanding film, and if you're looking for an interesting change of perspective and point of view on World War II, I strongly recommend it. It is an incredibly devastating film. We, I saw it in class, walked home, and as soon as I got home after the movie was done, just broke down, mm. sobbing, like uncontrollably for like a good half hour. All the war films are tough. Like, in you various know, they, different ways. Like they are incredible. 
mm -hmm. um, to varying degrees, but they're always so tough that you don't want to go back. I, and I say that as a person who one of his all-time favorite movies is Saving Private Ryan. Mm -hmm. um, but especially what you're reminding me is the tough stories to see are the civilian stories in war-torn regions. Yes. Because you can say what you want for the soldiers of the winning side and certainly for the losing side, mm -hmm. but the people who are just collateral damage, you just, you, you, you can't even sometimes. You, you just, you can't process. And I think that's as, as a North American mm -hmm. viewer. I think that's also a really big thing to keep in mind about wartime films. You mentioned, you know, whether you're identifying with the winners or the losers, ultimately everyone everyone loses mm -hmm. in war there are no winners mm -hmm. there one side may come out victorious and that nation rises up but yeah. it's or those nations yeah but ultimately when you watch something like and they're great examples the pacific or band of brothers those men all lost oh yes in one way or another yeah yeah um and and in a large as did their families at, as did the families that the, exactly. the towns they ripped through exactly yeah. Well, okay, I, I really do need to see this movie now. Um, this could get interesting. Ariel, what's a mm -hmm. film that really freaked you out? Oh, this one was, this is an easy answer for me. And oh. it's, it's I, I'm cheating a little. I have, I have some multiple answers for these. Of course you do. Because I like to bend the rules. I don't, mm. I, they don't apply to it's me. It's a very short show, I can right? tell. Right, super short. Uh, the Exorcist and The Changeling. I had huge nightmares. I saw The Changeling when I was quite young. It was one of those movies that my parents watched with my brother and I when we were growing up. Okay. And that that wheelchair, when it chases her down the stairs, <laughs> nightmares for weeks. I explicitly remember having a nightmare. How old are you? Uh, maybe 10, 11, give or take. I was young, but I watched a lot of stuff like that young. I mean, hell, based on the episode when we were leading up to the 100th episode on A Frame Apart, we did an entire episode, one with where my brother and I were speaking of the, about the movies from our childhood and one where Bob and his sister were speaking about the movies from their childhood. And Derek and I discussed Natural Born Killers, which my brother saw at 10 and I saw at 7. God 11, damn, dude. Yeah. He, yeah. Well, we had the we had the pay-per-view box. Our parents, our right. grandparents were away in, in Florida. They were snowbirds. They left us the box. And my brother was like, nobody's home. Let's watch this. It's funny because you wonder sometimes if some of the really dark parts of those movies just flew over your head. Oh, they completely yeah. did. They totally did. Yeah. I was caught up oh, in the man. imagery. I was caught up in her long, luscious hair at the yeah. beginning and just I, fantasizing about <laughs> having that. I've never seen The Changeling. Like you say, oh. you say changing, and my brain immediately goes to the jo Angelina Jolie movie. Ew, no, I no, know no, that's no. wrong. No, I know that's absolutely wrong. But I've actually never seen it. I, mm. I hear it's a horror classic. I should probably really track it down. It's a horror classic, and it's a Canadian horror okay. classic. That is a Canadian production. George C. Scott's in it as the main character, and it's it's a ghost story. Oh. He loses his wife and child in a terrible accident right at the beginning of the film, which you know that's a part of the. Yeah. That's a, I'm not spoiling anything here. Mm. And the Exorcist so, for obvious reasons. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, saw and, that at 13. Oh, God damn. <laughs> my my experience with The Exorcist is legend at this point, so I'm not going to get into it. But Changeling, I, I mean, now I'm curious to see what freaked you out, so that ought to be interesting. Um, kind of conversely, what is a movie, they're coming to get us here in Midtown, um, what is a movie that always makes you laugh? Without fail, every single time, The Heat. <laughs> really? Yeah, and it's actually apt that you. this is the question that you've asked, because and I don't know if you remember, but... In in 2017, the BBC did BBC Culture did a uh, a poll of the top 100 greatest comedies of all time. I do remember that. I was one of the critics that they polled for that. 
So I had to make a list of my top 10, which you can still see it's on the website. So what I'll leave I, a link in the show notes. Yeah. And what I had ranked as my top 10 were in order When Harry Met Sally, A League of Their Own, The Princess Bride, Young Frankenstein, The Heat, Clueless, Good Morning Vietnam, The Birdcage, Victor Victoria, and Mrs. Doubtfire. Great list. And all of those movies make me laugh occasionally. I've seen them so many times that mostly they just bring me joy. Right. But without fail, Melissa McCarthy paired with Sandra Bullock just effing kill me <laughs> every single time without fail. There are very few movies that I can watch and rewatch and rewatch. Yeah. And they have me laughing out loud. Not one does it. I think that Bullock is underrated as a comedian. Oh, completely. She's underrated as a performer. She is. She's so natural in her delivery that you don't really under... It's very difficult, especially for the layperson, to understand how gifted a performer she actually is. Uh, It's funny because the the bloopers for that film Mm -hmm. are the most boring thing I've Uh. ever seen. (laughs) Because she and McCarthy are so skilled as performers in general and with improv... That they're, they just keep going. Their bloopers aren't even really bloopers. They're, they're just, just the take jokes, didn't work. Right. So they just stayed in character and oh, kept going. That's genius. I, it's, it's, it's incredible to watch if you want to understand how understated both of their talent mm-hmm. actually is. Oh, yeah. No, they're, they're both amazing comedians, uh, amazing performers. Um, McCarthy, I just I watch everything she's in. I, I, I love her as an actor, as a comedian. She's incre- like amazingly funny. Oh, like, yeah. like she does not get near the credit that she should. No. Um, and and just you know is is just fantastic on all fronts as as a human being. Oh yeah. Um, so that's a good one. I haven't watched it in a while, so I think now I got it. Oh yeah. Uh, what is your favorite movie soundtrack, Ariel Fisher? As usual, I have multiple answers. Ah, come I on, know, man! I've only got one bottle of beer. It's only it's already half empty. I'll be quick. Uh huh. Number one, well, tied for number one. Then my top two are almost famous and the Red Violin. I've, okay. I've spent a lot of time working to the soundtrack of the Red Violin, so it's very, mm. it's got a very specific resonance with me. Have, to uh, it's, have you ever seen the film? Nope. Oh, again, I know the violin moves from person to person. It's, it's following the violin through the years, it's, right? Yes. I like that it's, idea. To put it simply. Right. No, it's, but it, I can't yeah. say what else okay. because that's okay. part of the story. Okay. But also a Canadian production. Yes. And it's a brilliant film, absolutely stunning. Okay. Almost Famous, of course, you're playing to the choir because that's my favorite movie ever. Right. And another movie where the soundtrack budget was off the chart at the time, I believe, is actually the most expensive soundtrack ever because all those sense. songs were really expensive. Yeah. They're all used so perfectly. Completely. Um, it's, it's yeah, no, it, it's that's an incredible soundtrack. I, everything from, I mean, even the song that wasn't used, there's a moment where they wanted to use Stairway to Heaven. Okay. Uh, in... in Trying, I'm glad they didn't. It, it, it's what he plays to convince his mom to let him go. There's, oh. a, there's a deleted scene oh, yes. where he plays it and like she reads the lyrics and she realizes it's Tolkien and it's what convinces her to let him go okay. uh, on the tour. Um, you know that and Tiny Dancer and that My Sharia Moore. And that Tiny Dancer moment though is so beautiful. It's so perfect. And it's one of these things that has now become kind of embedded in cinema culture, I oh, think. Oh, yeah, yeah. That to the point where in, like, 20, 30 years, you're going to get some dipshit kid who's going, Almost Famous is really overrated. Yeah. It's no. Like, no, 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 no. That's yeah. like saying the Beatles are overrated. Yeah. Hush you. Shush, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I could be, I'm not, I'm not going to go on too much about that because everybody knows my thoughts on that soundtrack. Yes. I love every single song. I love the original music that they wrote for it, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stuff that they wrote for Stillwater. Fever Dog? 
awesome song. Uh, my favorite is a tune called Love Comes and Goes. Okay. It's the one that the, Jason Lee is at the piano. Yes. It's a great song. It is. Um, all right. Last but not least, what is a film you love but seemingly nobody has heard of? Again, I have a couple answers. Come on, dude! I know. I know. But you love Fine. Me. So... Fine. My all-time favorite film... Fine. Is... <laughs> fine is the age of innocence and you would be amazed how many people how many times someone's asked me that i tell them that and they go i don't know what that is and i'm like daniel day lewis michelle pfeiffer winona Ryder. they're like what martin scorsese what you know what i love about that it's, it surprises me it's not just age of innocence yeah it's best picture nominee Age of Innocence. It's Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese. Age of Innocence. It's Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah. Age of Innocence. Um, it's like amazing I cast. Love, I love, kind of quietly love how huge films in their moments can still recede into the background. Yeah. Somewhat. Especially and, after and, the film. And it doesn't matter about box office, doesn't matter about critical receipt, like, doesn't matter about award nomination it's just something for a moment is part of the zeitgeist and then, and then it just fades right um like i mean if you go back it's it's you know it's 2018 you go back 10 years mm-hmm. doubt with meryl streep yeah. and amy adams Which and phil seymour hoffman a lot of people haven't seen it mm-hmm. like multiple performances out of that movie people are like hey remember doubt <laughs> nobody remembers doubt yeah you know that kind of thing or the reader from the same year. Best Picture nominee, The Reader. Yeah. A lot of people don't remember. You know? But Kate Winslet winning in that film for Best Actress, The Reader. Well, that was one of the most fascinating things, I think, for, for me at least, if not for us, about doing the do-over with Jamie yeah. Doo, was coming across some of these films and going, what the heck is this? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, even with something like The Sting, I think I, I did that episode, and I'm watching The Sting going, sure, this is fine but it didn't deserve to win it. Right. And then you consider what kind of a what kind of a reception the sting had at the time and it was it was it was enormous. it was yeah. the, the music those those guys doing their thing again. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, it's it's incredible. Age of Innocence is an amazing movie. There's a lot of dinners. That's my only little drawback. Like there, there's there's a lot of there's have, a lot of drawing room porn. Have in you that ever movie. read The Age of Innocence? I have not. You're a big reader. I am. You need to read Edith Wharton. Okay. It's The Age of Innocence is one of my all-time favorite films. It's one of my it's my all-time favorite book. Okay. And it's it's absolutely astounding. It's I will, so I, well I written. Will. And a lot of the reason why it's a lot of dinner sequences and it's it's portrayed really, so lavishly. Does she get really descriptive about the rooms? N- uh, no, not n- not in a Tolkien way. Okay. But she is descriptive. That's but fine. it's descriptive for a purpose because okay. she is it the the thing that a lot of people miss about The Age of Innocence is that it's a satire. Oh, it's it's a, a, a searing, seething satirical look at upper upper middle class, upper class society life in Manhattan at the turn of the century and the judgment of that, because that was her world, her family. You know, the saying, keep up, keeping up with the Joneses. Yes, that was her family. family. Yeah. That's where that that term started. And she was incredibly critical of it and had no qualms about about scrutinizing the very world she came from. Um, my other two films. No, no! I'm just going to mention them. Fine. Because literally no one knows what Fine. they are, but they're outstanding and they people need to know what they are. So if I have a chance to mention them, Fine. oh, I'm going to take the megaphone. Uh, they're both from, I want to say Scandinavia. Okay. I could be wrong. Um, uh, the first one is called Volcano, or 
it's actually from Iceland. That one I know. Uh, Elgefall from sure. 2011. Okay. It's basically L'Amour by Michael Haneke, yeah. but it predates it, and it's infinitely better. I'm convinced Haneke ripped it off. Wow. Them's fighting words. And them's, and, and I will go okay. to battle okay. on that one. Okay, okay. It is exquisite. It's basically about a man who had worked as, as a janitor for the majority of his life uh, and neglected his family and had all kinds of bad relationships with his family. And then he's forced into retirement, is debating suicide. And then his wife, who he's trying to reconnect with after years of emotional negligence and abuse, has a massive stroke. Okay. And he's forced to take care of her. Uh, and really What's the other one? come forward. The other one is 90 Minutes from 2012 <laughs> okay. by Eva Sorog. Um, basically, it's about the last 90 minutes of someone's life. And oh, the movie's called 90 Minutes. Yes. I thought you were telling me like, no. it, it runs. Okay, okay it, go on. Uh, I think it's 90 Minutes as well. Right. But it's basically the last 90 minutes of a person's life told in three stories. So beginning, 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 middle, middle, middle. And oh, end, okay. End. Okay, I get you. You don't know who's going to die. Um, and it's it's not a horror, it's not a mystery, it's basically a domestic drama because it's all about domestic abuse. Because at this point in time, uh, and again, I wish I could remember exactly where this was, I think somewhere in Scandinavia, the because of how quickly feminism had been embedded into the culture, mm -hmm. men were killing their wives and their spouses at an alarming rate to the point where they Ooh. needed to establish shelters for men to go to when they felt they were at risk of hurting their partners. Speaking of my, speaking of masculinity. Yeah. Okay, so Actually, Age of Innocence, perfectly. Volcano, and 90 Minutes. Yes. Very nice. All right, that's Ariel Fisher. We'll learn more about her when she shows up for a fifth round next year sometime. <laughs> uh, but right now, we've got a movie to talk about. We've got a humdinger to talk about after this. We're going to play the new slang. It's eighth grade. Coming up right after this. The new slang brought to you by the save button. <laughs> the new slang for episode 205 is 8th grade, which is directed and written by Bo Burnham. It stars Elsie Fisher, Josh Hamilton, and a bunch of people I've never heard of. 8th <laughs> grade is about Kayla, that's Fisher, and the film is completely set during her final week of middle school. Our introduction to Kayla is by way of her YouTube channel, where we listen to her give a sweet but slight monologue about being yourself. She speaks in cliches, says um and like after every third word, but is quite genuine in her desire to connect with other people and be a reaffirming voice. The contradiction comes when Kayla turns off her webcam. In school and in life, she is reserved, anxious, almost painfully shy. She is voted most quiet at school and wants to do something about that side of herself if only she could figure out where to start. Eighth grade is the story of Kayla's attempt to get outside of herself and grow into someone better and brighter. It is a truly difficult time to be a teenager. I should know. And <laughs> where once the ideal form and the ideal life was magazines and TV, it now lives in wait in our own devices, going to and fro with us in our pockets. However, somehow, some way, this movie has come along and transcended beyond generational and gender lines to talk about the ideal form and the ideal life. So pop quiz hotshot. <laughs> How does a film so specifically about this moment speak to people 
from so many other moments. Well, I think the thing that makes something like eighth grade so special is that it's as much about the child's experience of going through school and coming of age and, and identity and self as it is about the struggles of parenting. Mm. And to me, like the, the thing that really resonated with me was how bad I felt for the dad mm. because I'm just thinking, and I know him from Sex in the City of all, of all things. He, <laughs> he was a lawyer and went on a date with Miranda and they had phone sex and he was having phone sex with other people at the same time as her. But he's come a long Scoundrel. way now as a father. Right. But it, the whole time I'm sitting there going, man, I feel bad for the parents of, uh, of teenagers because it's a hard line to walk. Yeah. And I mean, I now granted, my experience as a teenager was vastly different. Well, not vastly different, but was very tumultuous for very traumatic reasons that I'll get into. But I can't imagine trying to tiptoe around that. So I think it, 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 it will speak to everyone in terms of remembering how awkward it can feel in high school remember or in middle school and in high school just as a kid and how uncomfortable you feel in your own skin and the reality that and this is something that i've had to come to terms with entering my 30s the idea of adulthood is kind of a fallacy <laughs> we you know i say to my mom all the time i still feel like a child 30 years old, I still feel like a kid. And my yeah. mom's in her 60s and says, honey, I still feel like a child. I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Well, exactly. We yeah. all are. And and you never, it, that concept of self and identity is is something that I think everybody, whether they like it or not, can relate to th- at every age. I think for me, this movie talks about, this movie speaks to anybody who has ever walked into a room and felt like they are completely out of their league. Oh, completely. Um, and, and, and that is, I wish I could tell Kayla and people her age and people just slightly older and people just slightly younger that that will go away. But unfortunately, it just never, ever goes away, no matter, like, I, I got to... Not ma- completely. I, no, like, I, like listen, I, I there are, I'm, I'm certain, there are rooms that LeBron James walks into and feels like he doesn't belong. There are rooms that, that Bill Gates will walk into and believe he doesn't belong. There are certainly rooms that you and I will walk into and believe you don't belong. And it's just, oh, yeah. it's it's the moment where you feel like everybody else is in on something that you are not. And maybe it's looks, maybe it's attitude, maybe it's intelligence, maybe it's just something that you don't possess. And that will never completely go away. No matter how arrogant you are, how rich you are, you will find a spot which you stick out like the very sore thumb. Mm-hmm. And Kayla goes through that over and over and over. You can sort of tell, like you can certainly tell that some of the kids around her go through that. You can probably tell that her dad is still going through that. If oh, you, know, yeah. you know, he did it at one point. And I believe that that is not something that is specifically for somebody in their eighth grade right now, but it's just, it's universal. Yes. Completely. I totally agree. I take it you dug this movie. I completely dug this movie. It struck me. I, I'm, it's funny because I remember watching Bo Burnham's early videos. You know, my whole family thinks I'm gay. <laughs> and all of those when he first started out on YouTube recording videos with, with bad sound in his bedroom. Like and, Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, that's where so much of it's coming from, right? Is right. that he kind of came of age in the digital age. And by recording himself and trying to find his own voice, now, for all intents and purposes, it really does seem like he found his voice fairly, well, not necessarily quickly, but he he 
he exuded confidence. Yeah. And this is the opposite of that. This is yeah. the other side of that. The person who's desperately trying to find that confidence by trying to fake it till you make it. Yeah. But I'm so proud of him for this yeah. because this is, it's not, it's not Ladybird. No. It's not as accomplished, but it's, it, for a first feature film from someone who does not have a background in filmmaking. Yeah. It is an incredible accomplishment. It's not polished, but it is handsome. Yes. Um, it is for a, and maybe you can disagree with me on this, for a male director, it is surprisingly feminine. Well, I think the thing about that is... Uh, Bob and I have talked about this a fair For a bit. male director. For a male director. The film itself, you can certainly tell that it's, it's not from from the female eye. But it, yeah, it's not but it's not from the male gaze either. No. It's through it's through a very neutral gaze yes. about uh, you almost had me. Go it, on. <laughs> to me this is from a very neutral gaze and it's it's reminding me of when when Bob and I did uh, we did our Dial Z for Zombie Month and we looked at the history of zombie films and when we did our Romero show and we're talking about Day of the Dead. And uh, no, Day of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead. Right. And Bob's talking about, you know, this concept of representation and how everybody's so skewed about it. Like they're all up in arms about how can I watch a film with a black protagonist and relate? How can I watch a film with a female protagonist when I'm a man yeah. and relate? Yeah. And, and he flat out said, that's bogus. It's absolutely bogus. Because he looks bogus. at... Um, it's a smart Kevin, guy, that, uh, that Barrow. He's, yeah, every now and then, he's got some <laughs> Uh, one of the most intelligent people I know. Please continue. But he, he was talking about uh, Ken Forey's character and how he watched him and just wanted to be Ken Forey because yeah. he's such a great character and he's yeah. got such nobility about everything he does. And it's I think the same is true of a film like this is that it's <clears throat> it's important to recognize that the experiences that we have as young people as young men or young women, while they do, there are differences, for the most part, the feelings of awkwardness, of insecurity within ourselves, of trying to find our identity and who we are and find our place in the world, those are universal. Yeah. No matter how you spin it. I agree. And if you can't relate to a character who is not your gender, not your race, not your sometimes religion can be a little touch and go but it depends on how it's approached then not, your you're, not your class not your class definitely you're not opening your mind enough. no um i think i agree elsie fisher as kayla in this movie is incredible i have not seen her in anything else mm. um has she done anything else i'm not sure i okay. will check um what i love about her besides the fact that she looks like a typical teenager like, she looks like she could be playing soccer on the pitch down below us right now. Mm -hmm. Or she looks like she could be pushing the grocery cart on Saturday while her family does the shopping trip. Yeah. You know, like, I feel like I've met this girl. Um, and that she's not just some polished uh, juvenile actor who they mm -hmm. plucked. Um, but what I love, along with the fact that she looks very authentic. Um, Jesus, she's got 23 uh, credits to her name. Oh, well, pfft. Look at that. Shows Holy, me. She's done um, a lot of stuff. Nice to meet you, Miss Fisher. Um, Hi. <laughs> you know, um, she speaks in this movie the way 
most teenagers speak. Yes. There's a lot of ums, there's a lot of likes, there's a lot of double speak that doesn't entirely make sense. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of darting of the eyes. Yeah. Um, and not to jump too far ahead, but it all kind of comes to this point at the end of this movie, in a moment where I don't want to get too far into detail, but she speaks up to somebody uh, who, who she should have spoke up to before. But in a film that a lesser movie would treat as the slow clap, rah-rah moment, mm -hmm. the, the, oh, captain, my captain speech, yep. she can't look her audience member, her two-person audience, she can't look them in the eye. Or she, she struggles. No, to, she, she cannot. Struggles, her eyes are down the whole time, I which she, I, 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 it was either a specific directorial choice, oh, yes. which mo, mo, like more likely, or it was a really, really lucky accident. And I got to believe it's the former. Yeah. But that's the kind of touch mm -hmm. that her. She is an actor, and Burnham is a director. Bring to this moment that I'm like, I know this girl. Yeah, that girl is me. That girl was me. Really? Like, oh yeah. Oh, well, that's do the, tell. Well, this is the. I think this is one of the big reasons why. Because it wasn't going. me. So it, I was the. I. <laughs> my entire adolescence, yeah. up until high school, I was the ugly duckling that every single person picked on. I was the butt of every joke. I was underfoot all the time. Okay, I was, it was awkward me. <laughs> and uncomfortable. Right. Sorry, I had no idea who I was. I was the quiet person that everybody thought was a weirdo. Right. Because I was interested in weird things and yeah. I didn't make sense to them. They couldn't they couldn't they couldn't define me. Right. They didn't know what I was. And when I was in eighth grade, and eighth grade was particularly tumultuous for me, uh, because I I changed schools. For my last year of, of elementary school, I was at a new school, so I could. I was like, "Oh, great! It's a time for me to redefine myself." You yeah. Because you always think new place, new yeah, opportunity. Yeah, yeah. It it sort of worked, but not really. Oh, okay. And that was the first time I and I, I I may have mentioned this to you. I'm not sure, but I'm not technically heterosexual. I'm pansexual, and that was the first time I'd ever had a crush on a girl. But I couldn't engage with that because you're in eighth grade. Yeah. And you're a new person in a new school and you can't, you struggle to define yourself. And when you're feeling things that are not status quo, when you're trying to be the status quo so that people will like you. In a way, I was hurt too. Because like, I just, I thought about it a little bit more, um, especially in the eighth grade. Like seventh grade, eighth grade, things got really awkward for me really fast. I was with the same group of kids I'd grown up with the whole time. They were all materialistic. I was not. Uh, I reached my full weight before I reached my full height. So, and I was somewhat clueless about a lot of various things. And it just like eighth, seventh, and eighth grade just did not go well. Yeah. So in those moments, I saw her in the, in the trying to talk to people in the going to a party that you're not really invited to. Um, I like, I saw myself. You know, I obviously had a very different experience than she had. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, not that different. No. No. And and I did too. I went to, I remember going to birthday parties for like my best friend, Nikki, who I'm, who I'm still in touch with, who I've known since I was two years old. Mm. And she was, she was this effervescent, very easy to get along with, easygoing person. Yeah. 
that everybody was just attracted to because she was like the perfect girl next door cool chick. Like she's she's basically Blake Lively. Right. Where it's like you can relate to her, you can talk to her, she's easygoing and she's fun and she's friendly to everybody and she's kind and warm. So I would go to like her birthday parties and the popular girls would be there and I was still the butt of every joke and I still felt I would, you know, go and sit on my own and kind of just sit there quietly the way she does and goes and sits yeah. on the corner, you know, yeah. in the corner. Yeah. Um, so then there's the boy she likes. Mm-hmm. I want to say his name is Aiden. Yeah. Okay. And I love, I love the way she's drawn to him and I love how much of a, it just in the scope of this story. Yeah. I love how much of a flake he is. Oh my and I love how he just drifts in and out of this story. He's every boy who had remote, like, even an iota of popularity in elementary school. He really? is every single boy <laughs> that was like that. He is a type. He is an archetype. And, like, it's amazing. I'm watching it going, oh, I knew you. I knew, like, five of you. And you were all the same, and you were all terrible. I mean, what is he? He's voted best eyes? Yes. <laughs> I do love the way he framed those, and you've got this, like strong intense music and the slow motion and he's a total spaz is that what you hear when you look at bob no <laughs> not even the first time you looked at bob you didn't no, hear that the first time uh, i looked at bob i i really I hope bob is listening story. to this hey he knows the first time i met bob he tried to hide in plain sight because he was nervous around me okay we rode up in an elevator together and i got in there and i'm standing back and there's plenty of room and he stood in the complete opposite corner basically face first into maybe the he heard that music about you I, he did. Oh, there we go. <laughs> See? Um, no, but I mean, Aiden is the typical... Like, I mean... Aiden's a Justin Bieber. Aiden, oh, yeah. Aiden is the guy who looks up to that kind of dude oh, yeah. who, you know, for the next... At least for the next five years will be a gigantic douche. Oh, yeah. And who has, you know... I don't know if he's peaked early, but he's certainly, like, high up the slope mm-hmm. while everybody else is still down at base camp. Oh, and yeah. he knows it. Oh, completely. Right? And it's 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 wild to watch Kayla interact with him. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, I hate to say this, but he's not in her league. But it's not going to stop her from trying. No. And that was really... that. It's funny, because that actually reminded me of me when I was in, like, third or fourth... No, fourth or fifth grade? Something like that? Yeah. There was this boy in school who... He was that for me. And I just thought he was the cutest. His name is Sean. Hmm. And I thought he was gorgeous. Right. And I really wanted to go out with him. And he was way out of my league. Right. He was the he was the popular pretty boy that got along with everybody. And I was the loser nobody that everyone made fun of. And it felt like this movie, right? Oh, completely. Like it's, am- it's I, amazing. I asked him out. I got his phone number. Oh, scandalous. And I called him. And I asked him, I was wondering if he wanted to go to the movies sometime. He's like, yeah, okay, who else is going? And I was like, oh, it would just be you and me. And he said no. So it was like this devastating, crushing moment. But I'd had the guts to go and to ask him out. And it it was basically that situation. I'll, I'll trade you a story. When I was in seventh grade, we were in another school doing some sort of studies. I actually want to say it was religious studies that we were to bust off to this other school oh, okay. to do for the afternoon. And me and my classmates were like playing handball mm-hmm. in the schoolyard. And for the first time in my life, a girl I did not know 
walked up to me and said, excuse me, my friend over there thinks you're cute. Aww. And I, and I, like, I, I was like, who? Yeah. And she points over to a girl. And, and I, I, the one thing I do feel terrible about is I don't remember what the girl looked like at all. Okay. But I do remember. It was a long time ago. It was. But I do remember the next two words I said. No way. Yeah, right. No. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. The first girl. Riot. I no no. It wasn't. It wasn't against her, and it wasn't like it, I don't remember her being like any kind of an unattractive person or anything like that. Nobody up until then had ever said, "I think you were cute." So it was I your did. Dis- I didn't believe her. So it wasn't about her. It was about your disbelief. Yes. Of the situation. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Still a terrible thing to say. I know! <laughs> I know! I feel so bad. Um, this movie is very much about identity and mm-hmm. how it's informed by who we are online. And this movie, oh, yeah. um, she tries to fumble her way through a motivational speech about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I are both people who have an online presence. Yep. Um, in some capacity that is our best self in some capacity that is our worst self in some capacity that is not at all us yeah um what did you think of like kayla trying to do these videos and trying to represent herself and this whole contradiction and like what it still means for us well i think it's trying to showcase the the online generation through a child is actually in my mind it's a really brilliant way to go about it because Bo Burnham was a lot older than that than she is mm-hmm. when he started doing this stuff maybe not a lot older but he was older yeah he wasn't in eighth grade and it's hilarious to me when you're with the high school kids at the cafeteria and they're like she's a totally different generation than us no she's four years younger than <laughs> us. not a different generation right but he poses an interesting point when he says you know what how old were you when you got snapchat yeah I was in this grade and, like, I think about the first time I got a cell phone and I was either, like, 16, 17, 18, something Dude, like that. Dude, I was 20. Maybe. But see, exactly. And you're a little bit older than me. so So you... And it's the same thing for Bob. And I was that age because by that point, it was relatively normalized. Yeah. Kids are getting cell phones at, like, 8, 9, 10 years old now. Yeah. Which just blows my mind. Right. So it's... But wait, but we're, we're drifting but here. In terms but how does of, that yes. come down? How does that come down to identity online? Identity online is such a complicated thing. And I think it's... Honestly, I think it's incredibly problematic. And I think this cultivation of self in reality is hard enough yeah. without these kind of schizophrenic experience of trying to cultivate multiple identities dependent on platform. Who you are on Instagram is not who you are on Twitter. No. Who you are no. on Twitter is not who you are on Facebook. Yeah. And who you are online is not who you are I, IRL, right? <laughs> it's it, And I think for adults, it's a lot easier to engage with social media in terms of... Even though of, we weren't raised with it? Yes. Interesting. Specifically because we weren't raised in it. Oh, okay. In it, actually, is a, is a good way of putting it. It was a slip, but... We weren't raised embedded in the culture of being online. We were raised going outside and running around, you know, taking our bikes out with our friends until the sun went down and we had to get home, Mm. going to the max milk and getting slushies, you know, doing that kind of thing, climbing fences, falling, scraping. And these kids at the same ages are, you know, sending selfies to one another. And it's brilliant to me because the entire film literally Everyone is constantly looking at their phones. I didn't catch that, but now that you mentioned it. Like 99% of the time, they're yeah. all doing that. Yeah. The high school kids aren't. They're engaged with each other because 
they're not part of a different generation, but they're part of a different generation. Yeah. Kayla is, is also relatively unplugged. You can tell for her because of the way she was brought up, you get this kind of disconnect where she's, she's trying to cultivate a pop, uh, a popular persona online because it's less scary mm-hmm. than trying to self-identify in public. She might not be able to talk to the girls at the pool party, but she can talk to her webcam. Exactly. You know, even though only six people are watching, yeah. she can talk to her camera and just be a different, ver- like in her mind, a better version of herself. It's funny because you mentioned how she is wired differently than all these girls. I think that actually really comes up in the birthday gift that she gives Completely. to uh, Kennedy. Like mm-hmm. she gives her this card game. Kennedy looks at her like she's a worm. Oh yeah. For daring to give her how dare you this give crazy me. little this is like twist on crazy eights. Yeah. You know when all the other girls are giving her like Sephora bags and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's it's crazy for me because I think what I love about this movie is she clearly understands it in in concept, mm-hmm. but only in the very very broadest of strokes. Yeah, and even when you get this idea of for me, I was. While I'm watching the film, I'm kind of remembering we spend most of our adolescence hiding. Yeah. Whether it was like when I was her age, when I was her age, <laughs> you know, I didn't have a cell phone yet. Facebook wasn't a thing. You know, maybe you had ICQ and MSN and that was like the extent of it. Right. But you didn't have this online persona that you were trying to cultivate. Yeah. You had, uh, but you still tried to hide. Whether we were hiding behind clothes that were thought of as more popular, less popular, more fashionable, less popular. Now you're talking about my eighth grade experience. Whether we were, you know, hiding behind the popular music as opposed to what we wanted to listen to. Sports. uh, All of it. Like, I mean, I was listening to, and from a young age, I was listening to Jethro Tull and Blackmore's Night. And everybody thought I was nuts because they're all listening. I think you're nuts right now. What? Everybody's (laughs) listening to, like, Eminem and everything. And I'm like, what? Because that's just not what I was into. But Rock we, needs more flute. We, we spend the majority <laughs> of our adolescence hiding in plain sight, whether yes. it's behind clothes, media, social media, makeup, right. any of it, to the point where even she is hiding. She's hiding behind her phone. She keeps pulling away from it, but everybody else is just glued yeah. because there's so much security. Yeah. In, terms of, in, in terms of this concept of identity and self and social media, there is so much security in the validation of self that comes from engaging online. It's quantifiable. You have a certain amount of likes, you have a certain amount of followers, a certain amount of retweets, regrams, you name it. You can curate mm-hmm. your life for how you want to publish it. Like, there's actually a really great sequence in this movie where she's just like, burning through feeds. She's mm-hmm. going through Facebook feeds and Snapchat feeds and Instagram feeds and Enya is playing in the background of all things. Like this 30-year-old song. With Sail Away. Yeah, is playing in the background. Yeah. And it comes like one step away from being too much. But it just, it taps out at just the right moment. And you can see how that is, I mean, you know, you you get the point that that's certainly affecting her Mm -hmm. and how she sees everybody else's life and how that is how we look at everybody else's life. Mm -hmm. And we are seeing the very best selves that everybody wants to publish out there. I mean, listen, there's not, it's no secret why I tend to talk about only film and only books online. It's like, my life is boring. You know, it's not, 
that's sexy. I don't selfie. I like it's it's. I'm gonna cop to that right now. I will. Online is about my interests, not about my life. But I know a lot of people who it's you know the 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 barbecue on Sunday and the trip in July and the gathering for Thanksgiving like it, activities. It's, it's the very and, and the new bag and the new sweater and the new makeup and well, you know the it, things the yeah, stuff. The whole of our existence is seen through a Snapchat filter. Yep. And I think this movie does an amazing job at capturing that for mm-hmm. a not very experienced director and writer. Oh, yes. Very much so. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the two other girls in this movie. So we've got Kennedy, who is the brat. Yep. Um, she, we've all met her. Mm-hmm. Where you know you meet her at 14. You know who she's going to be at 28. You know who she's going to be at 40. Um, the movie does an amazing job of making her unlikable but not in a mean way i don't ever feel like this movie is trying to like she's not regina george no but even regina george was sympathetic yes but she's not sympathetic well i bite my tongue kennedy i kind of want to i keep wanting to call her madison she looks like a madison <laughs> looks like a, looks like looks like an ashley she <laughs> looks yes <laughs> She looks like an Amanda or a Rachel. Chelsea. Yeah. No offense to anybody listening who has any of these names. Clearly we have drama <laughs> around people with these names. Sorry. I knew like five or six of her, mm. of, of, of Kennedy's, from grade seven on. And they were horrible to me because I was easy pickings and because they had, you know, blonde hair and were pretty. Yeah. And I, you know, needed braces and had bad frizzy hair. But it's... It's interesting to me because she's a she's sort of a sympathetic character, but not really. I bring up Regina George, and I think that's it's an interesting comparison because you get a character like Regina George in Mean Girls, who is like you're saying she's not Kennedy Madison, whatever the hell you want to call her. Chelsea. Chelsea isn't a she's not like she's not a queen she, bee. She's not the Joker, right? She's no. not some supervillain. <laughs> <laughs> she's not some caricature but we're right. not getting clueless right. right we're not getting that kind of a film we're getting a more realistic approach where the concept of villainy is actually not really present she's very much a product of circumstance clearly she has a mother who she's a product is, of privilege she's a product of which is a part of her circumstance well, okay and you know clearly she has a mother who doesn't necessarily pay enough attention to her who is caught up in the and the dogma of class and cultural cachet and, and, and all of those things. They have this huge house. She's clearly single. She's totally trying to get with Kayla's dad and is all about appearances. So Madison, Kennedy, Chelsea is all about appearances and there's very little else there. She wasn't raised in a, in an environment where self is valuable, Yeah. where there is something to be said for identity and engagement and, and, being a good person and that's not necessarily a fault of her own i don't even necessarily think it's a fault of her mother's i think it's a systemic problem yeah but the very fact that you can see those things is a really is a really big testament in my mind to what bo burnham is doing is that he's flushed out these very realistic characters yeah who are again like like, again i feel like i've met her oh yeah and that's and her and the whole crew like i mean that's 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 the other sad thing is the most of the kids at that pool party are of kennedy's ilk uh yeah you know they um, all know how to, like, they get that group shot together and they yeah. all know how to hold their bodies. Yeah. And then They're all, yeah, they all know how to, that. you know, horse around and yeah. how to selfie and everything like that. 
on the flip side of things, we've got Olivia, who is the um, kind of senior buddy that Kayla meets mm -hmm. partway through this movie and um, is kind of this beacon because at first you wonder, okay, what kind of senior buddy is this girl going to get paired mm -hmm. up with? Is she about to go through another really rough go? Is she going to get Kennedy 2.0? Yeah. But then you meet Olivia, who at first seems really cool and really confident, and really bubbly. And after about 10 seconds, it's, oh my God, you're Kayla three years older. Yeah. You know, you're a little bit more put together and you've got friends, yeah. but you are the same girl, you know? And it's amazing to see mm -hmm. with just a little bit of confidence, a little bit of time. social engagement, and then just a little bit more time will do. Well, and it's, it's interesting for me because with with Kennedy specifically and all of those girls especially at the pool party existence is a performance oh yes it's not about living it's about performing it's mm -hmm. all about the performativity of social interaction as opposed to interacting socially correct whereas by the time you get to high school and you get Olivia it's that has shifted there's still very much people being caught up with performance and being caught up with appearance but not in the same way and that's very much true of once you get to high school is that that, that kind of has a bit of a shift because you're starting to engage with knowledge and the pursuit of and the pursuit of knowledge yeah in a very interesting way that makes you think you know everything while you really know nothing and then and you're gonna get this shift again when you go to post-secondary exactly right? if you go to post-secondary or if you just enter the workforce yeah in either way you get, you the get same this hole thing. in the shift yeah exactly so it's become a different kind of performance. Instead of a visual performance, it's an intellectual performance. And you get that very much in the way that they're trying to have this discussion at the table and the way her friend has the feminist necklace. And I'm going, you're 17. What the hell do you know about feminism? Aww. Well, Come on, because 17-year-olds can be feminists too. Oh, no. Definitely. Everyone can be a feminist. You can have two-year-old feminists if they're... Can I be a feminist? Everyone can be a feminist. Yay! Feminism is not bound by age or privilege or gender or race in fact the the entire concept of feminism is that it is intersectional intersectional implying intersectional it, it intersects everything uh, i but just mean 17... that in terms of it, it's it's i remember what i was like at 17 and at 17 i thought i knew everything i oh, actually I knew so nothing give anything to meet 17 year old you 17 year old me was dark man i'd just been through a hell of a lot of stuff 17 year old me was cocky as hell oh but no, I but I was, no, no, I was, I was shining it on. I was the shyest bastard you could possibly mm. think of. But I'm like, what can I do? I, I know, just completely counteract this. <laughs> just act like you know what you're doing and everyone will buy it. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Um, Olivia, I mean, I was fearful when she first gave Kayla her number. Yeah. Because um, Kayla actually goes through the motions of texting her. And it's kind of like she's texting a boy. Like she deletes and she re recomposes and deletes and recomposes. Mm -hmm. And I actually thought Olivia was going to come back and saying, dude, what are you doing? I was just doing that to be nice. Yeah. You know? Me too. So when you get this actual engagement and, oh, my God, I'm happy to hear from you and come on out and everything like that. Like my heart burst. Yeah. You know, it's this really lovely moment because I did that too. I remember tra making new friends is hard, no yeah. matter what Still age is. you are. Exactly, yeah. gets harder. And when you're trying to engage with someone, making that phone call, writing that note, any of those things is difficult. Oh yeah, it is incredibly difficult. Yeah, and yeah. it's you worry that it's going to backfire. So, like you said, it's like she was texting a boy. Yeah, of course it was. Because yeah. you're trying to, you're putting yourself out there in the hopes that you get some kind of emotional gratification and a, and a, and a, and a return, uh, you know. 
I, I, I feel like Olivia was her actual window into authenticity. Like she has yes. that whole speech about being yourself and being like not your online persona. Yeah. Like, but she oh, doesn't really understand. She doesn't know it because she hasn't actually seen it. Right? Yeah. She's been she hasn't done it. Surrounded by Barbie dolls, and she's like, I I know what this is in theory. I you know I, I've I've heard of a coincidence. I've just never seen one before. And, uh, and that for me, the the be yourself. Yeah. I still struggle with that to this day. Me too. Day. Like to this it's, moment. It's something that I've like I've talked about ad nauseum in, in therapy because I remember even in elementary school, first day of grade one, I was just picked on relentlessly. Yeah. And my I for the first like week of, of school I was I, I would call home almost every day and tell my mom to come and pick me up. And then eventually my mom comes and is like, No, we're gonna go and sit and have a talk. <laughs> And asked me what was going on. I told her that all the kids were picking on me and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to behave. And she says, just be yourself. And to this day, I have yet to be able to answer, what does that mean? Because the, the concept of self is fluid. It's ever-changing. It's so this idea of when she was talking about that and like, just learn to be yourself. And, you know, like, don't do um, like this. And, like, I guess you could, like, do that. And I'm sitting there going... That is basically how I describe it. <laughs> Get out of At my 30. head, woman! Um, there is... You know, you not know. long after she meets Olivia, um, and she meets Olivia's group of friends, uh, we get this... The most... The, the, the tensest part of the movie, which is this drive home mm. with one of the boys in the group. And the guy is talking to her. It's just her and the guy alone in the car. You can clearly tell it's, it's the first time a guy has actually really taken that kind of interest in her. There's another guy earlier mm -hmm. on who's sort of interested in her and she doesn't really notice. Um, and we're going to, his whole arc, I, I kind of want to leave out of it because I want to leave that as a surprise to anybody who yeah. might see this movie. Yeah. But on the drive home, this guy is talking to her and he goes, I can't talk to you like this. And he pulls the car over to the side of the road and you think that he's going to have her come up into the front seat. Yep. But he's like, no, no, no. He gets into the back he, seat yep. and everybody in the audience is like, oh, dear God, he's here literally it comes. sitting there just like I started cracking my knuckles. I'm leaning over. I'm like, nope, I'm going to get real protective right now yeah. of a character. Yeah. And he starts like a 17 year old guy who doesn't know what he's doing and doesn't know the kind of damage he can do would do he starts talking he starts talking to her in this haphazard game of truth or dare as soon as he says truth or dare i'm like oh geez. it's i, I mean it, like the crazy thing is it is it's it's gen like it's kind of subdued but it's terrifying it's tense it like it really gets your hackles up in the simplest way doesn't take much to have a realistic portrayal of sexual abuse. Yeah, and that's and you know what the thing is? I bet you, if you lined up a hundred guys his age and told them, okay, so you're driving a girl home, and you pull over to the side of the road and you just start talking to her as truth or dare, what do you think? Is that okay? I bet you at least half of them are going to be like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. How else am I supposed to get her to take her top off? And you don't, and like, that's the thing. is like, you know, that was why I was asking off the top of the show, what does it mean to be a guy now? Because every... Week, we are we are learning shit we shouldn't be doing shit we never should have been doing shit that was captured in pop media that is not that was not okay and is now definitely not okay mm -hmm. and this is the kind of horse shit that this guy has in his head of this is a way to communicate this is a way to engage this is a way to 
get what I want. Get what I want and connect with this girl. Which is why my answer to your question was humanity and humility. Yeah. Because that's what anyone ever should use as the foundation of their of their life. We should do everything in our lives with humanity and humility. And that will dictate how we go forward as whoever and whatever we are. And for since time immemorial, young boys have not been taught to live with humanity and humility. No. For the most part, young boys have been taught to live above, Supreme. to live within privilege, to exist outside of and beyond the rules. And as opposed to engaging with society as a human being. Would you say and this film is laced with humanity and humility? Yes, completely. So, And it, I think that his character in this moment, this moment was actually a little bit difficult and painful for me. Um, can I get a little dark for a sec? Go for it. All right. It was either between 8th grade and ninth grade or between ninth grade and 10th grade. It was in that circle. Um, my parents were split up at the time. I was, they split up when I was like seven. And I was staying at my dad's place and he lived in this relatively new townhouse complex, like this huge place at Dufferin and Rutherford and um, my friend came over we'll call her Sarah I'm making up a name and Sarah came over and another friend of ours from elementary school we'll call him Johnny lived in the neighborhood uh, so we got together and went and walked to the park and hung out as I had done a million times and then Sarah had to leave and so, so now it's just you and Johnny. It's just me and Johnny. We're sitting at the park. Everything's fine. We're talking. Now, I had known Johnny for years. He had been at school with me since grade one. Uh, he changed schools in like grade five, grade six. But he was the popular kid. He was the aide. Yeah. And we, he walked me back to my dad's place. And we're standing outside the door. And this is like barely sundown, like dusk. And he forced himself on me. Oh, shit. And he started kissing me, and I didn't want that. And I kept asking him to stop, and his response was, come on, you know you've wanted this a long time. Mm -hmm. And kept doing it, and, and I couldn't move. He had me pinned against the wall, the outside wall of my house. My house. And I had to kick him in the nuts like three times to get him off of me. And that was the first time I had ever been sexually assaulted. And I was 14 at most. And it was a very similar situation to this where afterwards I was made to feel bad for hurting him. Yeah. As if, like, the way he says in this, you know, oh, you know, now you're going to have your first experience with a guy and it's going to be terrible. I was trying to do you a favor. Right. Bullshit. <laughs> like, that's, it's, and that to me is one of the biggest things and I'll get into this a little bit more when you ask me about my prop, but... Well, uh, the thing that I take away from that and I look at a movie like this is you're going to get a guy like that kid in the back seat who thinks to himself, well, I'm not like Johnny. I didn't just pin no, little Ariel against the wall and no. force myself upon her. I just played truth or dare. I just asked questions. I just asked questions and I just took off my shirt. That's not so bad, right? That is, that is, ta everything he does, and this is a yeah. thing that, 
And some people might be listening to this, even listening to my story, saying that's not sexual assault. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It is the textbook definition of unwanted physical contact in a sexual context. And it's important that it's in this movie. Exactly. And in this context, for her, this is sexual harassment. Cut and dry. What this boy has just done is sexually harass a young woman. And the sad thing is she goes home Mm -hmm. and, like, you can see it's, it's already even affected, like, the way she wants to be around her dad. Well, it completely, and it's it's it, she has this moment. And I love the way he deals with the scene, the way he shoots it, and the way w- what he does with the sound. He works very well with sound, which mm-hmm. I was actually quite impressed with. Yeah, and I mean, in in my situation, I came home, I immediately called Sarah, told her what happened, and was told, "Oh yeah, he can do that. It's not a big deal." Jesus, because we as women are were raised to be less than, right. and young boys were raised to be above and to be more than, as opposed to being raised with this concept of humanity and humility, mm-hmm. this idea of equality and intersectionality and and respect, mm-hmm. and that's very much here. He brings that up in the perfect way and it's so seemingly innocuous with cataclysmic consequences yeah. when you consider who is this boy going to be later down the road oh yeah and it's especially harder that he was the quiet one at the table yeah my one question about this movie mm. does it come with a lack of stakes no because it's about a two-week interval mm. uh there's no real crisis point there it's 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 you know the narrative of her evolution over this very concentrated amount of time um and it encapsulates the idea that we all struggle with status at junction points in our life like i'm going through it this year at age 40 mm-hmm. you know i'm like should i am i where i'm supposed to be at age 40 you know, that kind of thing. You get it. Am I supposed to, am I where I'm supposed to be? I'm a, I'm a graduate student now. Am I where I'm supposed to be? I'm a CEO. Everybody has that. So does this film have a lack of stakes? Or is there a stake in it that is understated? It has the ultimate stake. Which is? The development of self. Oh. And that's something that we all underrate and undervalue. Huh. It's one of the reasons why we ask ourselves those questions. Like you, I'm 40. Am I where I should be? Why I ask myself, I'm 30. Am I where I should be? Why do I talk to you? Because I make you think about the bigger picture and you hate <laughs> Ten it. years younger than me? Jeez, man. I know, man. But uh, it's, uh, to me, that is the ultimate stake. And, and if you're going to break it down to the brass tacks of screenwriting, mm. the main character has a beautiful arc. Yes. She arcs. She arcs fully and completely. And that is really at the crux of what makes a film work. So what you're saying is it's a character study. Oh, completely. Which, which comes with its a different set of stakes than just a straight up A to B to C, like three act narrative. Well, yeah, yeah. I think there are there are films with debatably higher stakes. Yeah. Where no character arcs that are far less successful. It's True. not about the stakes; it's about the arc. Okay. And okay. for me, this film has huge stakes there because, again, it connects to it's all about self nice. and identity. Uh, well, we end every review here on the Matt and Acast with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible that you would take away from this film and keep if you could. Miss Fisher, what would be your souvenir from eighth grade? The film, not your experience. <laughs> I do. I wouldn't want a souvenir Maybe from my eighth grade. Uh, my souvenir is a little unconventional. My souvenir is Kayla. Wow. Because I, because I would want, I would love 
nothing more than to take that, that young woman, bring her into my life for just 24 hours and sit her down and just talk. Mm. I would love to share with her the things that I've learned from when I was as awkward and uncomfortable as her to now as an adult and to tell her that, to tell her the things that I wish I could tell myself at that age, okay. that everything would be okay that you're going to find yourself, and it may take a long time, it may take until you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond, Yeah. and that that's okay, it's beautiful. and that these ups and downs are a part of life, and that that's important to remember, because she doesn't have, it's amazing to me, because so much of the film is in truncated dialogue, Yeah. that is real, it's realistic, and Parents seldom know how to talk to their kids about the tough stuff mm -hmm. because it's tough to talk about the tough stuff. Yeah. And her father tries to kind of tell her these things and it's it's a really beautiful moment and you think he's going to go into this grand, momentous monologue and he never really does and it's perfect because yeah. he shouldn't. Yeah, no, this film has no slow clap moment. Yeah, exactly. Which, I, which is what makes it work. Um, mine is far more frivolous, uh, so I do apologize. My souvenir is I want that SpongeBob USB key. I knew it. And I want the contents of it too because I never did anything like that and still haven't, maybe I should. Um, but all of my USB keys are pretty boring. Uh, I, you know, I, I didn't, when she had that little SpongeBob, I was like, what the heck is, and then she opens it and it's a jump drive. I was yeah. like, oh, okay. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's an easy one and unpredictable, but that was mine. <laughs> we rate here on the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars. Ariel Fisher, how does eighth grade rank for you? 3.5. Very nice. This for me is a four star movie. This is one of the best films I've seen this year. I want everybody to see it. I especially want eighth graders to see it. I want yes. parents to see it. I want see men to see it, kids. women to see it. We need to look at these people. We need to look at this girl and we need to look at ourselves and figure out who we all want to be. And we need to look at kids in the digital age. I think there's a lot, uh, there's, and a lot of people have talked about this, there's a lot of damage that's being done to this generation that we're not going to really see the repercussions of no. for another 10, 15, 20 years. If, yeah, yeah, if we if ever understand all. it. Yeah, if we ever actually understand it. Hey, maybe we're wrong. Maybe you think that we're completely overselling this movie. Maybe you think that this is genius and we're actually underselling it. Let me know. Ryan at the Matinee, Twitter, where I'm Matinee underscore CA or Facebook. Dot com slash dark matinee. What do you think of Bo Burnham's eighth grade? We're going to take a quick break, uh, flip the record over, play the other side right after this. Come on back. back. She's Ariel Fisher. I'm Ryan McNeil. Matinee Cast 205. We've been talking about Bo Burnham's eighth grade. The sun has dipped below the horizon. It is twilight here in Midtown Toronto. Uh, apologies if the wind is whipping across the mic or the occasional siren uh, has uh, dotted the episode, but uh, we need to get a little bit of oxygen into the show and summer's almost over, so... Um, yeah. It is time. That's a sad thought. I know, right? Um, back to school shopping is happening. There's Halloween candy at the grocery store. I know, store. it's too that early. That ain't right. It's not even September. That ain't right. No. Um, we've been talking about eighth grade, and um, this is the moment where we take a chance to talk about companion films, to um, 
to our future discussion, movies that would make a good double feature, some good further reading. Um, Ariel, what did you? Uh, what's the first film you came up with that people might want to move on to? Ladybird. Really? Yeah. Why? Uh, to me, that's a natural companion piece to this. Interesting. Um, because it's because it follows a very similar point of view. To me, it's a really great follow up to this uh, because. <sighs> Lady Bird was one of my favorite films of, what, is it 2016? Last year. You talked or about 2017, it. You yeah. talked about it eight months ago on this show. Oh, yeah. In that's the right, year I end did. episode. I did. And how you saw it with your mom. No, I wanted to see you it with You wanted my to mom. see it with your mom. And my mom has since seen it on her own, and we have not seen it together yet. Aww. But that movie, you want to talk about a movie where I saw myself in a painful and beautiful way, and <laughs> that's one of them. Okay. But it's, I, to. To the young girl who watches eighth grade and sees herself, I want her to go on and watch Lady Bird and realize all that she can be and that some of those anxieties still carry over and that that's okay. And to understand that the imperfections continue and that the imperfections are just a part of life. Yeah. And that's why. And that you're going to screw up. Yep. And that people will come into your orbit who seem to be good for you but are not. Mm -hmm. People who you don't realize are great for you are hanging in the background. And you talk about, a, a, you know, we were talking about the, the Kennedy, Madison, Chelsea character and how she's she's not like the Joker of the cinematic universe. I'm so this, sorry, Chelsea. I know, right? But that she's a very natural, normal human character that's being presented. And the popular kids in Lady Bird are much the same way. Mm. They're not the Jokers or the Riddlers of that film. I don't know why I picked the Riddler, but I'm staying in the DCU apparently. Sure. But it's, it, they're not these cataclysmic villains. They're just normal people who have, you know, slightly more privileged lives than our protagonist does, but they're not bad. And specifically in Lady Bird, we see that they're, they're decent human beings with some really bad habits and bad character traits that they need to outlearn and outgrow. But they're human. The one thing I love about both movies is um, they, again, when I was getting back to talking about how I feel like Kayla is a girl I've seen out and around playing hockey, playing soccer, pushing the grocery cart, their homes are much more genuine mm -hmm. of what I what was my reality growing middle up. Middle to lower middle class. Working class, middle class. Yeah. you know, messy, laundry piled up, rugs that look really, really threadbare. Little cluttered. Dusty, yeah. the floorboards are grody. You know, yeah, yeah. And I mean it's kind of crazy because in eighth grade that stands in stark contrast to Kennedy's home mm -hmm. with the pool and the Martha Stewart living kitchen and you know like the, the that is an Instagram home whereas well, exactly. whereas a lot of us do not live in that kind of reality but we all know some people who do we do but I mean it you don't see it on film and in TV all that often I mean not to not to shine a light on a, a, a property that is now kind of sullied but it was what was great about Roseanne was mm -hmm. the home was the kind of home of that kind of class of people. It's like, you know what? My home is a mess mm -hmm. and I could do something about it, but it's not bothering anybody and it's just going to get messy again. It's, it's that yeah. kind of thing on Lady Bird, you know, like the computer looks like it's eight years old. The, as I said, there's laundry piled everywhere. Lady Bird herself, she does speak a little bit like this kind of mm -hmm. mashup of Olivia and... 
Kayla. With a Gerwigian flair. Yes, yes. You know, well, she, I mean, that's what I love about that movie is she's very much good at Gerwig. Oh, completely. You know, like, right down to the way she screams. Like, she's yes. at this moment where she has this, like, spaz out, and I'm like, she told you exactly. how to hold your arms, how to mm-hmm. pitch your body. I know that body language because it's Greta Gerwig and I love every one of her movies. Mm-hmm. Um, my first movie to go along with this is one that I don't know if you've seen or not. I've only seen the once. Once might be enough for me. Um, and I got to thank a friend of the show, Jolie Featherstone, uh, for pointing it out to me because she brought it up on her first appearance and I tracked it down. In French, it's called Amasur. Uh, in English, it's called Fat Girl. Oh, I know of Fat Girl. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've so, yet to see it. It's similar to this movie, but darker. It's supposed to be brutal. Oh, it's, it's, oh, oh, it's like, like capital T, capital W trigger warning for that mm. movie. So it's very similar in that the titular Fat Girl mm-hmm. is at almost the same juncture in life. Also very awkward, not really fitting in, really wanting to. She's kind of like, I mean, we see Kayla practicing her kissing on her yeah. hand. Did you do that? Uh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't, I didn't do that, but I probably did, like, whatever the boy's version is. Well, it's, the boy's version was masturbation. No, 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 no. But I mean, I, okay, this is my moment. I didn't grow up, especially in, like, 7th, 8th grade, and even ninth grade. I did not grow up sexual. I grew up romantic. Okay. I, and that was what screwed me up. I almost said something else. That was what screwed me up early was I didn't want to go out on a date. I wanted to fall in love. Right. Okay. Which came with its own host of problems yeah. because then I didn't know how to ask a girl on a date. I knew how to ask her to be my girlfriend. Yeah. Buy a note. Um, <laughs> oh, Do you, think, you like me? Check yes Oh, no, or no, 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 no. These things, they were good. Oh, wow. For, for grade nine me, they were good. But that was the problem. They were too good. And it was just like, no, off they go. Uh, Pablo, like, no, Naruto, no, no. Yeah. Pablo Naruto's got nothing uh, on you. You have no idea. <laughs> um, so, but that's the thing. So whatever the practicing your first kiss was for a guy, mm-hmm. I did it. Um, and I think it happens again in Amasur. Like she's really um, looking around at the boys and looking around at the girls and curious. Yeah. Okay. The difference is where this, where eighth grade opens the door of the dark room and stands just inside the uh, threshold. Mm-hmm. Amasur walks into that room, slams the door shut, and nails it. Yeah. The ending of Fat Girl is shocking. Um, it, was contra- it was and is controversial. It has caused huge debate. Mm-hmm. Um, this film played at TIFF, and there was a lot of argument about it at TIFF. And it almost has to be seen to be believed. Mm-hmm. And I, it, it's one of those things where you, it, it's either going to enrage you, or it's just going to shock the hell out of you, and you will not forget it. It is a bit, like it's indelible. This yeah. movie, and and a lot of movies aren't indelible. That's true. So that is that is my one for sure. Is that if you want to take this whole experience and make it French, and make it dark. <laughs> Well, so make it French. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm a sir. What other one did you uh, have to go My with? My other one is The Edge of Seventeen. Oh, wow. That's such a good choice. I wish it was mine. From, for many of the same reasons that I picked Lady Bird. For me, The Edge of... It's funny because this is... A, the three of them work together as this really clear pro- trajectory of like... That the one is shift. 2016. That one, yes. 
Well, and they're chronologically one year apart from each other, right? Mm. So you get The Edge of Seventeen, which is this really beautiful portrayal of what of the painful reality of being a young girl trying to define herself and feeling completely lost in who she is, her friends, her world, her sexuality. Her family. Her family, all of it. And then you get Ladybird, which is a lot of the same ideas, but more so, and kind of a more realistic approach, and uh, not afraid to be a little ugly. And then you get eighth grade, which takes it back a bit to when they're younger, but still that same kind of idea of stripping it even further back and stripping it back to more bare bones, more vulnerability, more imperfections. So for me, these three work as a perf as perfect companion pieces to one another. How long have we been out here? My screensaver just changed. I don't know. <laughs> um, sorry, I was listening. Um, <laughs> what I love, no, what I love about Edge of Seventeen is uh, Haley Steinfeld in that movie mm. is very much self-aware. She is, she has gotten to the point in her existence where she has, she know, she, she has crafted a very specific persona, mm -hmm. you know, she likes old music, she likes old movies, she likes writing stuff down, mm -hmm. she, she drips, she's not into Snapchat and Instagram and all that stuff. She does it because everybody does, yeah. but it's not her existence. It's, yeah, right? it doesn't she, define her. She's very much like Kayla. Like she's the one who's going to yes. give you a card game for your birthday. Yeah. Um, but she's still working through it. Like she's that. She's that kind of example, like Olivia, mm -hmm. that you can get further on and get more comfortable and get more, you know, secure in your skin, but still not have it together. Yeah. It's it's all right. You know, it's going to be a process. Mm -hmm. And it also has this technological message where she's interacting on Facebook. And she sends a message that she doesn't mean to send. It's like, oh shit, it's out there. Yeah. You yeah. know, like which, which we are still coming to grips with. Well, that's like when she threw her phone, which to me was hilarious. Cause it's like, <laughs> how many people have done that when their parents walked in on them doing something they shouldn't have been doing. Uh, but when she goes to pick it up and goes, shit. And she's all like frustrated. I could have sworn what it was going to be was that in, th in grabbing it and throwing it, she had accidentally liked ah. like a three month old post on Instagram of Aiden's. Yes. And like, that's the ultimate No, yeah, you sin. can't deep like. No, you can't deep like. You can't deep like. No. I deep like all the time, who cares? You're looking through somebody's pictures, it's not like they cease gonna, to be. I'm gonna deep like you later. That sounds wrong. <laughs> no, I've just gave context. People know what I'm talking about. I have just explained it. No, they have it's no. It's a shitty term. I don't care. Um, <laughs> it's a terrible. Term. I love that movie so much. It's it's such an underseen movie. I kind of feel like Lady Bird stole a little bit of its thunder because it took. I oh, think Lady it took Bird a lot of that game and went pro. And it, but it for good reason. Like The Edge of Seventeen. Okay, I'll, I'll phrase it this way. Lady Bird is the superior film. Yes. I was going to say The Edge of 17 is inferior to Lady Bird, but that's unnecessarily no. negative. Lady Bird is the superior film. It is better written. It is better performed by yeah. all involved. And it is it is better directed. Yeah. I, it, I, so many people are like, well, she didn't deserve to win the best, or she didn't deserve to be nominated for best director. No, absolutely the she did. The brilliance of how that film is directed yeah. is that you cannot see the strengths. Yes. And that is incredibly difficult There's this to weird, do. We're at this weird moment where best directed is most directed. 
Well, it's kind of like that with editing too. Like people think that the best editing is the film that has the most cuts. Yeah, and that's not necessarily no. the case. And no. it's it's an oversight that I find is mostly made. It's a sin that's mostly committed by people who don't actually fully understand how films are made. Yeah, yeah. and that's and that's something that I think people should engage with. Um, both movies by female directors and yeah. writers. And yeah. in and in the case of Edge of Seventeen, it's amazing because. Uh, the director whose name is escaping me and my internet is down, so please bear with me. Um, the, the the screenwriter gave the movie over to Fox and Fox went on a search. It's, I, I think it was James L. Brooks's company. Went on a search for a director and they said, they came back to her after several months. Wait, this said, is with? Edge of 17. Edge of 17. They okay. came back to her after several months and said, we can't find anybody who we think is going to do your script justice. What do you think of directing this movie? Yeah. It's amazing. Um, oh, I wish that was mine. My other one um, that I went... I went a little bit further back to 82. Uh, you weren't born. Um, I went back I went back to Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Interesting choice. Um, also, Woman in Film, Amy, Amy Heckerling movie. Um, who, for those who may not be aware, also did Clueless. Yes, also did Clueless. Frankly, uh, I think it's a better film. I mean, yes, but that's Emma. Yeah. yeah. No, but I mean, it's a better film because it has a better script. Yes. Um, but <laughs> Fast Times at Ridgemont High, I think, goes over a lot of the clumsiness and, again, the seeming, sometimes the seemingly passive mm. uh, trouble that we get ourselves into in yeah. teenagers. Sometimes the active trouble that we get into in teenagers. The expectations that we set on sex, which is not really that much in eighth grade besides, like, it's kind of on the periphery. It's more crushes and kissing aside from dipshit in the car. Mm -hmm. um, but by the time we get to Fast Times, it's all over this movie. Yeah. And at the time, the expectations were set by TV and magazines and movies and dirty magazines yeah. you know now the expectations are set as i said in your pocket in your phone and i think there's probably no more profound moment than when jennifer jason lee is losing her virginity in a dugout at the beginning of that movie to an older man and yeah. she, she so she starts dating this older guy right he takes her out in a really nice car takes her out for like food right he's like do you want to go to this special place that i know and he takes her to a baseball diamond <laughs> And they get it on in the dugout. And she's got her back on the dugout bench and she's reading graffiti on the dugout ceiling while she's losing virginity. Right. And it's just this amazing moment of what we have as the expectation. Expectation versus Versus, versus holy crap, it's this? It. This sucks. <laughs> this with this person yeah. at this moment really sucks. And it, it's weird because it sets her ahead because going on in that movie she starts kind of sort of crushing on the guy who's the usher at the okay. movie at the movie theater but now she's more experienced than him so she's kind of leading the dance interesting because i've only ever seen fast times once oh and many years ago i'd be, so I'm I'd very be fascinated to which you have to know i'm deadly serious i'd be fascinated to, i think it holds up um there's like there's technological stuff that doesn't hold up yeah. but i think that there's a lot of that movie um, that really still applies. Besides the red bikini. That's the thing. It's become <laughs> known for this one moment of perviness. Yeah. But it's about like 
so, so much. It's, it's, oh my God. And speaking of moments of perviness. You're going to deep like? No, I died when they, when that kid's jerking it in class. Yeah, what oh the hell? God. In back in eighth grade. I guess people Dude, are, doing are you that? masturbating? What? I guess people do that. Like there's gotta be. Well, like, I don't know. Do, did boys do that like in the bathrooms at school? Yeah. Okay. But in class, hiding under your shirt, pretending you're not doing anything and that shaking movement is not happening? Like, come on, dude. Nobody has told him. That is not that, okay. That, that, that's indecent exposure. You know, he's, he's just like, jail. this feels good. I just oh, got to make sure nobody can see. Oh, God. Uh, and I mean, I, that, like, shit, that comes up in Fast Times. Yeah. Right? Like, it's one of these things where he's fantasizing about Phoebe Cates. Yep. And he thinks he's away from it all. And, and forgets I, that he's not. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, you know, it's it, if that movie was now, he'd probably be looking at Phoebe Cates' Instagram feed. Probably. You know? Um, but there's so much in Fast Times that I think really holds up. Um, about the awkwardness, about the shitty situations that we can find ourselves in, the shitty situations that we can graft onto other people, how much growing we can do in a year. Like, that's the thing. We've been talking about all these movies, mm-hmm. and we forget that this age of time, like 10 to 20, yeah, it's concentrated doses. Like, you go through so much, mm-hmm. so fast, oh, yeah. so hard. You give almost more of yourself than you will ever give at any time of your life. It's it's almost insane we get through it. Oh, yeah. Especially when you consider the fact that the teenage brain is only ever capable... The reason why things are so much more painful and indelible when you're a teenager and when you're a child is because our brains process the information differently. We are physically incapable as teenagers of being able to reconcile the knowledge with the feeling that this moment will not last forever. That's one of the reasons why teen suicide rates are so high. It's mm. because when they go through a bad breakup, if they, if they get a terrible grade and get yelled at, if they're feeling pain or, or strife really of any kind, the, the way the teenage brain, the youthful brain is wired is that that feeling the seems to go on Forever, the nerve receptors are off the chart. Yeah, you have God. no, you have no perception, you have no concept that this too shall pass. Yeah, that just doesn't exist. That's why time feels so much longer as a kid. That's why two weeks doesn't go by in the blink of an eye when you're twelve. No, but when you're thirty and forty, yeah, you have to plan two months in advance just to make just to make dinner plans with your friends yeah, yeah. because everything happens so much faster and it yeah. all comes down to not just the, the basic chemistry of our brains and how that changes from youth into adulthood and beyond, but also the concepts of, of, you know, f- physics and relativity and, and the way that we as human beings, physical entities engage with the passage of time. And as we get older, time physically passes faster. Do you remember when summer used to feel like it lasted forever? Yeah. You know, it seemed like it was a year to itself and you would live an entire lifetime in a summer and and, and you'd like several different kinds of lifetimes as you grew up. Yeah. Yeah. They don't tell you that. They don't tell you shit. You know, they don't. Those are the things. That's what I miss. Like you talk about like what you want to tell teenagers. One of the things I want to want to tell a teenager is when school ends, soak up every second. Yeah. Get the heck out of the house. Go do some stupid shit. Mm -hmm. Go meet people fall in love get your heart broken yeah 
run, swim, you know, hang out, work if you want to. Well, it's funny. And just live those endless summers because you, uh, you're going to get to 18 and you won't get any more. But they do tell us that. Parents have been telling kids that since... They just say go outside. That's, well, that's not the same. No, but they would. At least, I mean, my parents did. You know, go go do these things because time is fleeting. Yeah. You know, these ideas, maybe not phrased that way. Yeah. But they tell us that. Parents tell us constantly at every age that, you know, we're making mistakes, that you're going to regret this decision, that time is going to fly by eventually and things are going to be fleeting. Adults have been telling children and teenagers this forever yeah but the burden of being a child or a teenager is you think you know better yeah um as we approach the end of this episode i must note that this is one of the few times that we did not disagree the whole time i know right up top uh that is episode 205 of the matinee cast i would like to dearly thank ariel fisher for coming by um to to help me get this spot episode out in a reasonable amount of time um come on back on monday august 27th for episode 206 uh i have no idea what we're talking about because it's august and there's so many choices Mm -hmm. we might talk about black landsman we might talk about blind spotting uh we might talk about three identical strangers i have no idea there are so many good oh we might talk about crazy rich asians there Ooh. is so much good stuff in the theater, people. Crazy it, rich agents, Asians, crazy rich agents, Asians. I can't <laughs> say things fast anymore. I will, I will, I will. Maybe that might be it. That or Black I, Klansmen, or do a double bill. Uh, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll try. Um, <laughs> Ariel, as I said, is going to be writing on Fangoria soon, uh, and you are, of course, on Frame Apart. This Friday, one oh three will be going up. What are you talking and about? And I ate my darts. It's Eat Your Darts, Stephen King. So I excuse me, what? Wait, what? <laughs> you know, we have some episodes that are eat your darts episodes. Yeah, yeah, where we go back and we look at films either that we've never seen before, okay. or that we've seen a long time ago and need to desperately reevaluate. Okay. So we did a ways back. We did eat your eat your darts, Patrick Swayze, mm-hmm. and um, I ate my darts with Point Break and Roadhouse, neither of which I had seen before loved them we also talked about roadhouse on episode 100 you can go back and listen to me yell well, see, we, about that. we've just had this lovely moment you gotta go bring up roadhouse That's what are you the pain, doing i know but uh so hey, Ryan, you're throwing a no hitter how's your arm feeling <laughs> good grief we eat uh, your darts so eat your darts stephen king so i read the short stories for graveyard shift and trucks mm. and then we watched Graveyard Shift, and Maximum Overdrive. So I actually have to say, you mentioned earlier at the beginning of the episode that the the film I dislike the most or the film that I've hated the most was Legally Blonde and still is. It still is. Maximum Overdrive's taken a run for its money. (laughs) So listen to us talk about those terrible, terrible films on iTunes. And if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? You can find me personally at AFIS8, A-F-I-S-8. You can also find A Frame Apart at A Frame Apart Cast. Uh, you can also find my other podcast. I have two podcasts. Oh, yeah, it's coming yeah. back. Yes, yes, yes. It is coming back, yeah. Uh, I have another podcast with my mother called After All, a Mary Tyler Moore podcast, where we it is the cross-generational podcast dedicated to discovering and rediscovering the social, political, and personal impact of the Mary Tyler Moore Show. We've been on a hiatus with recording because we finished season one of the show. We are starting season two, which will be going live beginning of September. Nice. Uh, so you can find us on all social media at After All 
podcast uh, and both podcasts are available on iTunes. So please go rate review, and review the show. Reviews help us a lot. So if you can just take two seconds, write, you know, eight to 10 words, little blurb about the show, it would be greatly appreciated. And I also have a tiny letter. Oh, yes, you do. And people should, holy shit, should people read that? Yeah, you've been digging it? I have. Awesome. It, it's, it's stunning. It so, makes me hate you. Oh, uh, that's so sweet. God, are you good? <laughs> Tinyletter.com so much. <laughs> slash AFIS8, A-F-I-S-8. And you can uh, subscribe there and I will be writing something navel-gazing and introspective followed by a small little film or television recommendation or review. Uh, that'll be every week. So go and subscribe to that. You're right. It's called I Know, I know You're Right. You're right. Uh, links for everything in the show notes, by the way. My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Pocket Cast, Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, uh, Google Play, You're Welcome, Paolo, Apple's <laughs> podcast app, the iTunes Store, and everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on 8th grade, any of the movies we talked about today, uh, where either one of us is wrong or right, uh, can be left. Uh, in the comment section of the site, you can email ryan at thematinee.ca, Twitter, where I am matinee underscore ca, or facebook.com slash darkmatinee. Any final thoughts, Ariel Fisher? It's, Paolo and I were actually discussing the fact that he's probably the only human being who listens to podcasts on Google Play just the other day. He, the, he's the reason why it's on there. Because he works in my neighborhood. I got you. Yeah. yeah. So we saw, we ran into each other and had a whole conversation. It was nice. hilarious. For Ariel, I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee.